for, and boiled owl, and pass a by protest against the comparison, as it is a slander upon the owl. At Petropavlovsk there was an amusing fraternization between the crews of the Variag and the right. The American sailors were scattered among the Russians in the proportion of one to six. Neither understood a word of the other's language, and the mouth and eye were obliged to perform the duties of the ear. The flowing bowl was the manual of conversation between the Russians and their new friends. The Americans attempted to drink against fearful odds, and the result was unfortunate. They returned sadly intoxicated and were unfit for social or nautical duties until the next day. When the Variag was at New York in 1863, many of her sailors were entrapped by bounty brokers. When sailors were missing after liberty on shore, a search through the proper channels revealed them converted into American soldiers, much against their will. Usually they were found at New York, but occasionally a man reached the front before he was rescued. Some returned to the ship dressed as Zouaves, others as artillerists, some in the yellow of cavalry, and so on through our various uniforms. Of course they were greatly jeered by their comrades. Everyone conversant with Russian history knows that Peter the Great went to England, and afterward to Holland, to study shipbuilding. He introduced naval construction from those countries, and brought from Holland the men to manage his first ships and teach his subjects the art of navigation. As a result of his enterprise, the principal parts of a Russian ship have English or Dutch names, some words being changed a little to adapt them to Russian pronunciation. The Dutch navigators exerted great influence upon the nautical language of Russia. To illustrate this Captain Lund said, A Dutch pilot or captain could come on my ship and his orders in his own language would be understood by my crew. I mean simply the words of command, without explanations. On the other hand, a Dutch crew could understand my orders without suspecting they were a Russian. Sitting among the officers in the wardroom, I endeavored to accustom my ear to the sound of the Russian language and learn to repeat the most needed phrases. I soon acquired the alphabet, and could count up to any extent. I could spell Russian words much as a schoolboy goes through his first reader exercise, but was unable to attain rapid enunciation. I could never get over the impression that the Muscovite type had been set up by a drunken printer who couldn't read. The R's looked the wrong way. The L stood bottom upward. H's became N's, and C's were S's, and lowercase and small caps were generally mixed up. The perplexities of Russian youth must be greater than ours, as they have 36 letters in their alphabet and every one of them must be learned. A brief study of Slavonic verbs and nouns convinced me they could never be acquired grammatically in the short time I proposed remaining in Russia, and so I gave them up. What a hindrance to a traveler and literal man of the world is this confusion of tongues. There is no human being who can make himself verbally understood everywhere on this little globe. In the Russian Empire alone there are more than a hundred spoken languages and dialects. The Emperor, with all his erudition, has many subjects with whom he is unable to converse. What a misfortune to mankind that the Tower of Babel was ever commenced. The architect who planned it should receive the execration of all posterity. The apartment I occupied was of goodly size, and contained a large writing desk. My bed was parallel to the keel, and hung so that it could swing when the ship rolled. Previous to my embarkation the room was the receptacle of a quantity of chronometers, sextants, charts, and other nautical apparatus. There were 17 chronometers in one box, and a few others lay around loose. I never had as much time at my command before or since. Twice a day an officer came to wind these chronometers and note their variation. 
There were marine instruments enough in that room to supply a dozen sea captains, but if the entire lot had been loaned me, I never could have ascertained the ship's position without asking somebody who knew it. The partition separating me from the wardroom was built after the completion of the ship, and had a way of creaking like a thousand or more squeaky boots in simultaneous action. Every time we rolled, each board rubbed against its neighbor and waked the echoes of the cabin. The first time I slept in the room the partition seemed talking in Russian, and I distinctly remember that it named a majority of the cities and many noble families throughout the empire. After the first night it was powerless to disturb me. I thought it possible that on leaving the ship I might be in the condition of the woman, whose husband, a fearful snorer, was suddenly called from home. The lady passed several sleepless nights, until she hit upon the expedient of calling a servant with the coffee mill. The vigorous grinding of that household utensil had the effect of a powerful opiate. At eight o'clock every morning, Yakov, the Russian for Jacob, brought me a pitcher of water. When my toilet was over, he appeared with a cup of tea and a few cakes. We conversed in the beginning with a sign language, until I picked up enough Russian to ask for tea, water, bread, and other necessary things. At eleven we had breakfast in the captain's cabin, where we discussed steaks, cutlets, tea, and cigars, until nearly noon. Dinner at six o'clock was open with the never-failing Zotkushka, or lunch, the universal preparative of the empire and closed with tea and cigars, at eight o'clock tea was served again, after it, anyone who chose could partake of the cup which cheers and inebriates, one morning during my voyage a sailor died, the ocean burial occurred on the following day, and was conducted according to the ceremonial of the eastern church, at the appointed time, I went with Captain Lund to the place of worship, between decks, the corpse was in a canvas coffin, its head and breast being visible, the coffin, partially covered with the naval ensign, lay on a wide plank about two feet above the deck. At its head the priest was reading the burial service, while near him there was a group of sailors forming the choir. Captain Lund and several officers stood at the foot of the coffin, each holding a burning taper. The service lasted about twenty minutes, and consisted of reading by the priest and responses by the choir. The censer was repeatedly swung, as in Catholic ceremonials the priest bowing at the same time toward the sacred picture. Simultaneously all the candles were extinguished, and there several men advanced and kissed a small cross lying upon the coffin. The priest read a few lines from a written paper and placed it with the cross on the breast of the corpse. The coffin was then closed and carried upon the plank to the stern of the ship. After a final chant by the choir, one end of the plank was lifted, and a single splash in the water showed where the body went down. During the service the flag floated at half-mast. It was soon lowered amid appropriate music, which ended the burial at sea. On the third day after leaving the Pacific we were shrouded in fog, but with it we had a fine southerly breeze that carried us rapidly on our course. The fog was so dense that we obtained no observation for four days, but so accurate was the sailing master's computation that the difference between our observed and estimated positions was less than two miles. When the fog rose we were fairly in Gijita Bay. A body of water shaped like a narrow V-sharp eyes looking ahead discovered a vessel at anchor, and all hoped it was the Clara Bell. As we approached she developed into a bark, and gave us comfort, till her flag completed our delight. We threw the lead and began looking for anchorage. Nine, eight, seven fathoms were successively reported, and for some minutes the depth remained at six and a half. A mile from the Clara Bell we dropped anchor. 
the ship trembling from stem to stern as the huge chain ran through the hawse hole. We were at the end of a nine days voyage. Chapter VII. We were fifteen miles from the mouth of Gigida River, the shoals forbidding nearer approach. The tide rises twenty-two feet in Gigida Bay, and to reach the lighthouse and settlement near the river, even with small boats, it is necessary to go with the tide. We learned that Major Albasa, of the telegraph service, was at the lighthouse awaiting our arrival, and that we must start before midnight to reach the landing at the proper time. Captain Lund ordered a huge box filled with provisions and other tableware, and threw in a few bottles of wine as ballast. I was too old a traveler to neglect my blankets and rubber coat, and found that Anisov was as cautious as myself. We prolonged our tea drinking to ten o'clock and then started. Descending the ship's side was no easy matter. It was at least three feet from the bottom of the gangway ladder to the water, and the boat was dancing on the chopping sea like a pea on a hot shovel. Captain Lund descended first, followed by Anisov. Then I made my effort, and behind me was a grim Cossack. Just as I reached the lowest step a wave swung the boat from the ship and left me hanging over the water. The Cossack, and mindful of things below, was backing steadily toward my head. I could not think of the Russian phrase for the occasion and was in some dilemma how to act. I shouted look out with such emphasis that the man understood me and halted with his heavy boots about two inches above my face, clinging to the side ropes and watching my opportunity. I jumped at the right moment and happily hit the boat. The Cossack jumped into the lap of a sailor and received a variety of epithets for his carelessness. There are fourteen ways in the Russian language of calling a man a fool, and I think all of them were used. Wind and tide opposed each other and tossed us rather uncomfortably. The waves breaking over the bow saturated the Cossack and sprinkled some of the sailors. At the stern we managed to protect ourselves, though we caught occasionally a few drops of spray. Wrapped in my overcoat and holding a bearskin on my knees, I studied the summer night in that high northern latitude. At midnight it seemed like daybreak, and I half imagined we had wrongly calculated the hours and were later than we supposed. Between sunset and sunrise the twilight crept along the horizon from Occident to Orient. Further north the inhabitants of the Arctic Circle were enjoying the light of their long summer day. What a contrast to the bleak night of cold and darkness that stretches with faint glimmerings of dawn through nearly half the year. The shores of the bay were hyperpendicular banks, sharply cut like the bluffs at Vicksburg. There are several headlands, but none project far enough to form harbors behind them. The bottom furnishes good anchoring ground, but the bay is quite open to southerly winds. Captain Lund dropped his chin to his breast and slept soundly. Anasov raised his coat collar and drew in his head like a tortoise returning into his shell. But with all his efforts he did not sleep. I was wakeful and found that time dragged slowly. The lighthouse had no light and needed none, as the darkness was far from profound. In approaching the mouth of the river we discovered a cluster of buildings and close at hand to beacons, like crosses, marking the direction of the channel. There was a little surf breaking along the beach as our keel touched the ground. Our blankets came dripping from the bottom of the boat, and my satchel had taken water enough to spoil my paper collars and a dozen cigars. My greatest calamity on that night was the sudden and persistent stoppage of my watch. An occurrence of little moment in New York or London was decidedly unpleasant when no trusty watchmaker lived within 4,000 miles. Major Albasa and the Ispravnik of Gigida escorted us from the landing to their quarters, where we soon warmed ourselves with hot tea, 
and I took opportunity and a couple of bearskins and went to sleep. Late in the day we had a dinner of soup, pork and peas, reindeer meat, and berry pudding. The deer's flesh was sweet and tender, with a flavor like that of the American elk. In this part of Siberia there are many wide plains tundras covered with moss and destitute of trees. The blueberry grows there, but is less abundant than the moroska, a berry that I never saw in America. It is yellow when ripe, has an acid flavor, and resembles the raspberry in shape and size. We ate the moroska in as many forms as it could be prepared, and they told us that it grew in Scotland, Scandinavia, and northern Russia. The ordinary residents at the mouth of Gijiba River were the pilot and his family, with three or four Cossacks to row boats on the bay. The natives of the vicinity came there occasionally, but none were permanent citizens. The arrival of the Variag and Clara Bell gave unusual activity to the settlement, and the Ispravnik might have returned a large population had he imitated the practice of those western towns that take their census during the stay of a railway train or a steamboat. There was once, according to a rural historian, an aspiring politician in Tennessee who wanted to go to Congress. There were not inhabitants enough in his district to send him and so he placed a couple of his friends at the railway station to take the names of passengers as they visited the refreshment saloon and entered or left the depot. In a short time the requisite constituency was secured and sworn to, so that the aspirant for official honor accomplished the wish of his heart. The lighthouse on the promontory is a hexagonal edifice ten feet in diameter and height, it is of logs and has a flat top covered with dirt, whereon to kindle a fire. The interior is entered by a low door and I found it floored with two sticks of wood and a mud puddle. One could reach the top by climbing a sloping pole notch like an American fence post. The pilot resides at the foot of the bluff, and is expected to visit this beacon daily. A cannon, old enough to have served at Paltawa, stands near the lighthouse, in a condition of utter helplessness. The houses were furnished quite primitively. Beds were of bearskins and blankets, and the floor was the only bedstead. There were rustic tables of hewn boards and benches without backs. In a storehouse there was a Fairbanks scale, somewhat worn and rusty, and I found a tuneless melodeon from Boston and a coffee mill from New York. The town of Gijiga is on the bank of the river, 12 miles from the lighthouse, and the route thither was over land or by water, at one's choice. Over land there was a footpath crossing a hill and a wet tundra. The journey by water was upon the Gijiga River, five bursts of rowing and thirteen of towing by men or dogs as it was impossible to hire a horse. I repudiated the overland route altogether, and tried a brief journey on the river, but could not reach the town and return in time for certain engagements. Gijiga has a population of less than 300, and closely resembles Petropavlovsk. Two or three foreign merchants go there annually with goods to exchange for furs which the Russian traders gather. The inhabitants are Russians or half-breeds, the former predominating. The half-breeds are said to possess all the vices of both races with the virtues of neither. Mr. Bilzukovich, the Ispravnik of Gijiga, was a native of Poland, and governed 72,000 square miles of territory, with a population of 1,600 taxed males. His military force comprised 30 Cossacks with five muskets, of which three were unserviceable. The native tribes included in the district of Gijiga are the Koryaks and Chukchis. The Koryaks readily pay tribute and acknowledge the Russian authority, but the Chukchis are not yet fairly subdued. They were long in open war with the Russians, and though peace is now established, many of them are not tributary. 
those who visit the Russian towns are compelled to pay tribute and become imperial subjects before selling or purchasing goods. B. Ispravnik is an artist of unusual merit, as evinced by an album of his sketches illustrating life in northern Siberia. Some of them appeared like steel engravings, and testified to the skill and patience of the man who made them. On my second day at Gijiga I tried a river journey with a dog team. The bottom of the boat was on the dugout principle, and the sides were two planks meeting in sharp and high points at the ends. I had a seat on some bearskins on the plank flooring, and found it reasonably comfortable. One man steered the boat, another in the bow managed the tow line, and a third, who walked on land, drove the dogs. We had seven canines three pairs and a leader pulling upon a deerskin tow line fastened to a full pin. It was the duty of the man in the bow to regulate the tow line according to circumstances. The dogs were unaccustomed to their driver, and balky in consequence. Two of them refused to pull when we started, and remained obstinate until persuaded with sticks. The driver used neither reins nor whip, but liberally employed the driftwood along the banks. Clubs were trumps in that day's driving. The team was turned to the left by a guttural sound that no paper and ink can describe, and to the right by a rapid repetition of the word CA. Occasionally the path changed from one bank to the opposite. At such times we seated the dogs in the bow of the boat and ferried them over the river. In the boat they were generally quiet though inclined to bite each other's legs at convenient opportunities. One muddy dog shook himself over me, I forgave him, but his driver did not. The innocent brute receiving several blows for making his toilet in presence of passengers. The Koryaks have a habit of sacrificing dogs to obtain a fortunate fishery. The animals are hung on limbs of trees, and the sacrifice always includes the best. Major Abbas urged them to give only their worthless dogs to the evil spirit assuring them the fishery would result just as well, and they promised to try the experiment. Dogs were scarce and expensive in consequence of a recent canine epidemic. Only a day before our arrival three dogs developed hydrophobia and were killed. The salmon fishery was very poor in 1866, and the inhabitants of the Vigiga district were relying upon catching seals in the autumn. At Kolimsk, on the Kalina River, the authorities require every man to catch one-tenth more than enough for his own use. This surplus is placed in a public storehouse and issued in case of famine. It is the rule to keep a three-year supply always at hand. Several seasons of scarcity led to the adoption of the plan. We were frequently visited by the natives from a Koryak village near the lighthouse. Their dress was of deer skin, and comprised a kalanka, or frock, pantaloons, and boots, or leggings. Winter garments are of deer skin with its hair remaining, but summer clothing is of dressed skins alone. These natives appear below the ordinary stature, and their legs seem to me very small. Ethnologists are divided concerning the origin of the Koryaks, some assigning them to the Mongol race and others to the Eskimo. The Koryaks express no opinion on the disputed point, and have none. Both sexes dress alike, and wear ornaments of beads in their ears. They have a curious custom of shaving the back part of the head. Alamoin. Fashion is as arbitrary among the Koryaks as in Paris or New York, and dictates the cut of garments and the style of hair dressing with unyielding severity. Like savages everywhere, these natives manifest a fondness for civilized attire. A party visited the Clara Bell and obtained some American clothing. One man sported a cast-off suit, in which he appeared as uneasy as an organ grinder's monkey in a new coat. Another wore a sailor's jacket from the Variag, and sported the number 19 with manifest pride. A third had a fatigue cap, 
bearing the letters U.S. in heavy brass, the rest of his costume being thoroughly aboriginal. One old fellow had converted an empty meat can into a hat without removing the printed label, stewed beef. I gave him a pair of dilapidated gloves, which he donned at once. The Koryaks are of two kinds, wandering and settled. The wanderers have great numbers of reindeer, and lead a migratory life in finding pasturage for their herds. The settled Koryaks are those who have lost their deer and been forced to locate where they can subsist by fishing. The former are kind and hospitable, the latter generally the reverse. Poverty has made them selfish, as it has made many a white man. All are honest to a degree unusual among savages. When Major Albesa traveled among them in the winter of 1865, they sometimes refused compensation for their services, and were scrupulously careful to guard the property of their guests. Once the Major purposely left some trivial articles, the next day a native brought them forward, and was greatly astonished when day was offered for his trouble. This is your property, was the response, we could not keep it in our tents, and it was our duty to bring it to you. The wandering Koryak's estimate property in deer as our Indians count in horses. It is only among the thousands that wealth is eminently respectable. Some Koryaks own 10 or 12,000 deer, and one fortunate native is the possessor of 40,000 in his own name. Ovikamutik, though the wealthiest of his tribe, he does not drive fast horses, and never aspired to a seat in Congress. How much he has missed of real life. Reindeer form the circulating medium, and all values are expressed in this four-footed currency. The animal supplies nearly every want. They eat his meat and pick his bones, and not only devour the meat, but the stomach, entrails, and their contents, when they stew the mass of meat and half-digested moss. The stench is disgusting. Captain Cannon told me that when he arrived among the Koryaks the peculiar odor made him ill, and he slept out of doors with the thermometer at 35 degrees rather than enter a tent where cooking was in progress. The Koryaks build their summer dwellings of light poles covered with skin, or bark. Their winter habitations are of logs covered with earth and partly sunk into the ground, the crevices being filled with moss. The summer dwellings are called pelagans, and the winter ones yurts, but the latter name is generally applied to both. A winter yurt has a hole in the top, which serves for both chimney and door. The latter for the descent is a hewn stick, with holes for one's feet, and leans directly over the fire, whatever the outside temperature. The yurt is suffocatingly hot within and no fresh air can enter except through the top. When a large fire is burning and a thick volume of smoke pours out, the descent is very disagreeable. Russians and other white men, even after a long practice, never attempt it without a shudder. The yurt is generally circular or oblong, and its size is proportioned to the family of the owner. The fire is in the center, and the sleeping apartments are ranged around the walls. These apartments, called polegs, are about six feet square and four or five high, partitioned with light poles and skin curtains. Owing to the high temperature the natives sleep entirely naked. Sometimes in the coldest nights their clothing is hung out of doors to rid it of certain parasites not unknown in civilization. Benumbed with frost, the insects lose their hold and fall into the snow, to the great comfort of those who nursed and fed them. The body of a koryak, considered as a microcosm, is remarkably well inhabited. Captain Cannon gave me a graphic description of the Koryak marriage ceremonial. The lover must labor for the loved one's father, not less than one nor more than five years. No courtship is allowed during this period, and the young man must run the risk of his love being returned. 
The term of service is fixed by agreement between the stern parent and the youth. At an appointed day the family and friends are assembled in a yurt, the old women being bridesmaids. The bride is placed in one polag and the bridegroom in the next. At a given signal a race commences, the bride leading. Each must enter every polag, and the man must catch his prize in a specified way before she makes the circuit of the yurt. The bridesmaids, armed with long switches, offer every assistance to the woman and equal hindrance to the man. For her they lift the curtains of the polags, but hold them down against her pursuer and pound him with their switches. Unless she stops voluntarily it is utterly impossible to overtake her within the circuit. If she is not overtaken the engagement is off, and the man must retire or serve again for the privilege of another love chase. Generally the pursuit is successful, the lover doubtless knows the temper of the lovey before becoming her father's apprentice, but coquettes are not unknown in Koryakdom, and the pursuing youths are sometimes left in the lurch or the polegs, should the lover overtake the maiden. Before making the circuit, both remain seven days and nights in a polag. Their food is given them under the curtain during that period, and they cannot emerge for any purpose whatever. The bridesmaids then perform a brief but touching ceremonial, and the twain are pronounced one flesh. Northeast of Gijiga is the country of the Chukchis, a people formerly hostile to the Koryaks. The feuds are not entirely settled, but the ill feeling has diminished and both parties maintain a dignified reserve. The Chukchis are hunters and traders, and have large herds of reindeer but very few dogs. They are the most warlike of these northern races, and long held the Russians at bay. They go far from shore with their baydaras, or seal-skin boats, visiting islands along the coast, and frequently crossing to North America. Their voyages are of a mercantile character, the Chukchi buying at the Russian towns and selling his goods among the Eskimo. At Gijiga I made a short voyage in a baydara. The frame appeared very fragile, and the sealskin covering displayed several leaks. I was unwilling to risk myself twenty feet from land, but after putting me ashore the Koryak boatman pulled fearlessly into the bay. The Chukchi trader has a crew of his own race to paddle his light canoe. Occasionally the Baydaras are caught in storms and must be lightened. I have the authority of Major Albasa that in such case the merchant keeps his cargo and throws overboard his crew. Goods and furs are costly but men are cheap and easily replaced. The crew is entirely reconciled to the state of affairs, and drowns itself with that resignation known only to pagans. But, I asked, do not the men object to this kind of jettison? I believe not, was the major's reply. They are only discharging their duty to their employer. They go over the side just as they would step from an overladen sledge. I next inquired if the trader did not first throw out the men to whom he was most indebted but could not obtain information on that point. It is probable that with an eye to business he disposes promptly of his creditors and keeps debtors to the last. What a magnificent system of squaring accounts. The Chukchis have mingled much with whalemen along Anadir Bay and the Arctic Ocean, and readily adopt the white man's vices. They drink whiskey without fear, and will get very drunk if permitted. When Captain McRae's telegraph party landed at the mouth of the Anadir the natives supposed the provision barrels were full of whiskey, and became very importunate for something to drink. The captain made a mixture of red pepper and vinegar, which he palmed off as the desired article. All were pleased with it, and the hotter it was the better. One native complained that its great heat burned the skin from his throat before he could swallow enough to secure intoxication. The fame of this whiskey was widespread. Captain Cannon said he heard at Anadirsk and elsewhere of its wonderful strength, 
and was greatly amused when he arrived at McRae's and heard the whole story. Many of these natives have learned English from whalemen and speak enough to be understood. Governor Bill Zukovich visited Onadirsk in the spring of 1866, and met there a Chukchi chief. Neither spoke the other's language, and so the governor called his Koryak servant. The same dilemma occurred, as each was ignorant of the other's vernacular. There was an awkward pause until it was discovered that both Koryak and Chukchi could speak English. Business then proceeded without difficulty. Among the Chukchis a deer can be purchased for a pound of tobacco, but the price increases as one travels southward. With the Koryaks it is 4 or 5 rubles, at Ohats 10 or 15, and on the banks of the Amor not often less than 50. South of the Amor the reindeer is not a native. I am inclined to discredit Mary's stories of the wonderful swiftness of this animal. He sometimes performs remarkable journeys, but ordinarily he is outstripped by a good dog team. Reindeer have the advantage of finding their food under the snow, while provision for dogs must be carried on the sledge. When turned out in winter, the deer digs beneath the snow and seeks his food without troubling his master. The American sailors when they have liberty on shore in these northern regions, invariably indulge in reindeer rides, to the disgust of the animals and their owners. The deer generally comes to a halt in the first 20 yards and nothing less than building a fire beneath him can move him from his tracks. There is a peculiar mushroom in northeastern Siberia spotted like a leopard and surmounted with a small hood. It grows in other parts of Russia, where it is poisonous, but among the Koryaks it is simply intoxicating. When one finds a mushroom of this kind he can sell it for three or four reindeer. So powerful is this fungus that the fortunate native who eats it remains drunk for several days. By a process of transmission which I will not describe, as it might offend fastidious persons, half a dozen individuals may successively enjoy the effects of a single mushroom, each of them in a less degree than his predecessor. Like savages everywhere, these northern natives are greatly pleased with pictures and study them attentively. I heard that several copies of American illustrated papers were circulating among the Chukchis, who handled them with great care. There is a superstitious reverence for pictures mingled with childlike curiosity. People possessing no written language find the pictorial representations of the civilized world the nearest approach to savage hieroglyphics. The telegraph was an object of great wonder to all the natives. In Gijiga a few hundred yards of wire were put up in the spring of 1866. Crowds gathered to see the curiosity. And man, 